Welcome to the 52nd episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is LPL Reinvented, Going Beyond the Traditional Broker-Dealer Model, a conversation with Rich Steinmeier and Mark Cohn of LPL Financial. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other podcast resources. If you're new to the series, I encourage you to visit diamond-consultants.com slash independence101 for the top five episodes that will help you get up to speed on the basics of the independent space, plus links to other episodes you may have missed. And if you're listening to this series on the Apple Podcast app, be sure to leave a star rating and review, as it serves as a guide for us, as well as your colleagues in the wealth management industry who may be searching for valuable content to tune into. LPL Financial was formed in 1989 through the merger of two smaller brokerage firms, Linsco and Private Ledger. The new entity, one of the first independent broker-dealer models in the landscape, was designed as an alternative to Wall Street firms, where advisors could build their businesses with greater freedom and flexibility than what they were experiencing elsewhere. An interesting perspective, as some 30 years ago, LPL's vision to create an alternative to the status quo is exactly what we are witnessing currently entrepreneurial visionaries creating independent firms that offer legitimate options for the advisors tired of the bureaucracy that goes along with being a big brokerage firm employee. Now a publicly traded company with three decades under its belt, LPL is reportedly the largest independent broker-dealer in the country, with more than 16,000 financial advisors under its umbrella. But it wasn't an easy ride getting there. Over the years, the company suffered from negative press, stymied growth, and increasing competition in a much-evolved landscape. Today, LPL is on a new path, taking on the task of reinventing itself under the leadership of current president and CEO, Dan Arnold. One such example of this evolution came earlier this year when the firm made headlines with the purchase of Allen & Company in a deal that would make Allen's 30 advisors LPL employees under the Allen brand and mean gaining custody of $3 billion in client assets from Wells Fargo Clearing Services. The deal marked the firm's foray into the employee segment of wealth management and was part of really ushering in a new era for LPL. In Mr. Arnold's words, LPL is on a mission to become the next generation of the independent model. So to get some inside baseball on this LPL 2.0, I've asked two of the firm's leaders responsible for guiding strategic growth to be my guests on the show, Rich Steinmeier, who joined the firm in June of 2018, comes backed by experience at UBS and serves as LPL's Managing Director and Divisional President of Business Development. And Mark Cohen, the former COO at Market Council, the industry's leading business and regulatory consulting firm, joined LPL at the end of 2018 and serves as the firm's Senior Vice President of Strategic Business Development. 
We'll hear their take on where the firm is heading, their new value proposition, their appetite for recruiting new advisors and teams, the role of M&A in their strategic plans, and much more. Let's jump right in. So, Rich and Mark, thank you so very much for making the time out of your busy schedules to join me today. Thank you, Mindy. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be here. Great. Lots to talk about, so let's jump right in. So LPL, we know, is celebrating its 30th anniversary, which is extraordinary, actually. But in the last three decades, there's been a whole lot of independent broker-dealers born and a huge expansion in the independent space. So tell us a little bit about LPL's value proposition today and how it differentiates itself. What's its elevator pitch? Three decades is quite a long time of being pretty consistent in the industry of driving for serving the needs and understanding the needs of independent-minded advisors, being innovative, making investments into platforms, trying to drive change in the industry. And I think if you take that heritage and think about how that heritage extends, I think we see that manifest itself today and what our value proposition is. What do we stand for? We stand for serving independent-minded advisors, supporting those advisors so they can support their clients, committed to making consistent investments in our platforms, capabilities, infrastructure, And what I think that culminates in is what I call uncompromised independence, the capabilities of the biggest players in the industry, the intimacy of knowing them locally, but also serving them in the ways that advisors actually want to run their own practices and allowing them to actually use that, how they drive their practices to thrive and not bind them into constraints that we want to see them drive their practices in any way. So we keep that spirit of independence, but supported with a tremendous amount and a commitment to investment and knowing those advisors. Yeah. It's interesting as the industry landscape has evolved and most importantly, the independent landscape has evolved. What we find is that an independent broker dealer or custodian has to be about so much more than just investment platform. And I think that's what you're talking about. But let me ask you, both of you are recent joiners to LPL. Rich, you from UBS, you just said 13 months ago. Mark, you, I think, I believe in December or so. Um, So let's talk about your backgrounds prior to LPL and what made you join the firm. Um, Mark, you want to go first? Yeah, absolutely. So to your point, I joined LPL uh, December of 2018, uh, coming coming up later this year on my first anniversary, but I grew up in the RIA space. I was working with Market Council, leading business and regulatory compliance consulting firm, um, and helping to run that business, everything from the internal operations to really more excitingly for me, working with some of the leading, most successful advisors in their transition to independence, typically from the wirehouse space launching a small business, launching their RIA, and then growing that. And that's what drew me to LPL, was the opportunity to be able to expand the way that I saw that we could support these small businesses. Got it. And what what are the things that you did at Market Council that really transfer into this role that you think made you ideal for this role at LPL? So I think we can look at it from two different perspectives, both the idea of running a small business and being on the inside of that small business experience, I think puts me in a really strong position to empathize and put myself in the shoes of the advisors that we work with and to be able to help them understand what it takes to run their own small businesses. On the flip side, working with some of the most successful advisors through their transition, everything from the evaluation of what is the best business model for me to operate within 
to that actual transition of businesses typically. And then ultimately the growth of a successful organization has given me great purview into the, a lot of the solutions that exist in the space, but also the inner workings and the mindset of these advisors through that journey. Great. Rich, you came from UBS, so that's an interesting background, and we're watching this enormous – it started with a migration of just advisors to the independent space, and in the last couple of years, we've seen a tremendous uptick in the number of wirehouse leaders migrating toward independence. So let's hear about your background and what made you join LPL. Yeah, I have a little bit of a non-traditional background. So I actually started at McKinsey. I was a management consultant for a number of years and then had gone to work at Ford. So I'd worked on factory floors. I had served Caterpillar. I had worked with Steelcase and big manufacturing companies. And then I had the privilege to actually go to Merrill and was one of the leaders as we launched Merrill Edge. So I learned a lot about and had a lot great appreciation for financial advisors and how to support them. I then moved over to UBS and ultimately um, culminated in being the chief digital officer there. But the truth of the matter is during that entire journey, one of the things that really resonated with me was the actual fortitude, the drive, and the entrepreneurial spirit of financial advisors. And I loved working with financial advisors when I was at Merrill and at UBS. And one of the things that was most striking to me was when I had the opportunity to talk to Dan Arnold, our CEO, about joining LPL. He just kept referring to his clients, our clients, our clients, our clients. And our clients are our financial advisors. There's a clear distinction at this firm. We make no claim to the end investors. And so for me, this concept of serving financial advisors, unambiguously supporting their practices with no conflict of interest about their end advisor, their end investors, for me, it was a purity of a way to serve. And then you marry that with a firm that is committed to learning and listening and taking that listening and embedding that into making investments in supporting advisors and making it easier for them to do business. And I was just blown away with the opportunity. I can tell you, I sat with my fingers crossed hoping I would get this role. Interesting. That in and of itself represents a major shift in the industry. For years, again, it was only the advisors that were breaking away from the major firms. And the leaders at the major firms were vested in saying it's only the loser advisors. It's the advisors, planned attrition. It's the ones we wanted to lose that are going independent. And then all of a sudden in the last number of years, we're watching the leaders join them and not only join them by default, but joining them, as you say, by design. You mentioned, Rich, Dan Arnold. So let me ask you a question. Dan Arnold is this new CEO of LPL, not so new anymore, joined in 2017. And I know you both think highly of him. So, Rich, what is his strategy for the firm that has you both so strongly bought in? Let me give you two ways. I'll first, I'll start with the strategy. So the strategy that Dan's articulated for the firm and that we are embracing is, one, let's extend our participation to meet advisors where they want to be met. So that is... Obviously, you know our heritage in the independent broker-dealer space, but we're no longer just an independent broker-dealer. We actually aspire to serve advisors as they want to be met. So sometimes that may mean that they want to be employees. And so that means we will serve independent-minded advisors through the employee services. Sometimes it may mean that they want to forge out and start their own RIA, and we want to support them in that space as well. So let's meet the best advisors in America, and let's meet them where they want to be met, and let's evolve our capabilities to support their varying practices. That's first. Second, let's 
actually create a world-class client experience. Let's make the investments in the tools, capabilities, technology, infrastructure, our service organization, so that they get an unparalleled support. And then third, and actually I think this is a pretty distinctive part of our strategy, let's actually extend our participation in the value chain. Let's help those small business owners get professional management. Let's help them get marketing services, CFO services. Let's help them do lead generation. Let's help them think about the capital they need to grow. And if we can do that, we don't actually have a vendor relationship. We have a trusted partner relationship that is critical to helping folks grow. That's the strategy. The second part is Dan is a unique individual. I mentioned I worked at McKinsey. I've worked with over 30 CEOs. I've never met someone with the competitive spirit, the ability to be humble, this servant leadership characteristics of really listening to our clients and actually always wanting to hear what they need to say and never doing it with skepticism, always doing it with honesty and integrity. And he's a rare breed. And I got to be honest, it is thrilling to actually get to come to work every day and work for him. If I could build on that, Mindy, I, I got to know Dan a little bit while at Market Council working right alongside him and serving some of the advisors that are in the space and sitting in meetings with Dan. He was just purely electric, seeing the way that his mind operated from demonstrating a very clear, well-thought vision that was inspiring by itself, but then being able to operate at the lower detailed level and being able to really hone in and own a lot of the details to be able to get there and operationalize what that vision would be to me, it was purely inspiring. I read an article in, I believe it was Forbes about a year and a half ago, that people change jobs for one of two reasons. Either they're running to an inspired leader or they're running away from a leader. And to me, Dan was that leader that I was running towards because I really thought I would thrive in the opportunity to work alongside him and to be able to execute on that vision of integrating in various levels of service, whether it's custody, clearing, broker-dealer level support, serving as NRIA, technology services, or that practice level management to be able to help someone run a sound small business, to me, felt really inspiring. So it makes sense to me, given what you're describing about Dan, why it would make sense for both of you to want to join. But do you think that the charisma or personality or skills of the leader really play into how an advisor should think about vetting an independent broker-dealer? So in other words, if you line Dan Arnold's LPL up against every other independent broker-dealer out there, every reputable independent broker-dealer out there, does Dan Arnold himself, should he weigh into an advisor's decision? Should Dan Arnold, yes. One, because you know the firm's going to be well-led. You also know that the firm is going to attract the best talent. I didn't leave the wirehouses to go to the independents. I left a firm to join a firm led by one of the best leaders I've ever had the experience of getting to know. But that's not the only reason. Ultimately, if Dan is ineffective at cascading his leadership, his cultural perspective, his vision to the firm, then I would tell you, no, you shouldn't join that firm. But the truth of the matter is, if you look at, and hopefully through part of this conversation, we'll start to reveal the composition of the leadership team at LPL is made in the image 
of that leader. And so you see that cascading throughout the organization. You see us articulating a mission statement, which is we say we take care of our advisors so they can take care of their clients. We have that cascade into our values, and that is cascaded through the whole organization. We're actually in the throes of a three-year cultural transformation to make sure that we are humbly listening to our clients and taking that input and reflecting that into the firm. So in a word, yeah, you should take that into consideration when you think about as an independent advisor what firm you're going to join. So Mark, Rich just mentioned in the midst of a cultural transformation. One of my questions is actually, so how has LPL's value proposition changed? How will it continue to change over this three-year transformation? And how has it changed in terms of what they deliver to their advisor clients in the past three decades? Having been in this industry for quite a while and being familiar with LPL, I think the notion that LPL is the largest independent broker-dealer, which is that catchphrase that you consistently hear associated with the brand, is one that probably doesn't tell the full story. And so if instead you look at the idea of a value proposition that's comprised of five key areas, you can serve as a broker-dealer, you could serve as a custodian. You can be the RIA and offload the regulatory compliance risk and burden from an advisor. You could be their technology provider, and you can be a practice-level support system and leader for their organization. When you integrate those together, you put yourself in a spot where you can really support any independent-minded advisor who wants to go out, be able to achieve a position where they're serving their clients free of conflict, and position themselves in a way where they know they're putting their clients in a position to be well-served because of the partnership that they have with LPL. So let me piggyback on that for a second. LPL known as the largest broker-dealer. What you've got now is a potential breakaway population, a population of wirehouse advisors that are looking at independence because they want to get away from big and bureaucratic how does the description or the imprimatur that LPL has as the biggest broker-dealer, how does an advisor get past the notion of another big bureaucracy? I think there's a lot that goes into that, where independence is the first piece of it, right? So we are staunch champions of independent advice. And what that means to us is that the advisor can brand themselves how they want, they can serve their clients how they believe is best, and they have full control over those relationships to make sure that their clients are aligned against the best solution set. So if they wanted to take their clients and go out the door to find another business partner, they'd be able to do that. What that means for us is that we need to make sure every single advisor feels a distinct value from the relationship with us. So along the lines of the cultural transformation that Rich referred to a little while ago, we've also gone through a service transformation, one where instead of an advisor feeling as though they're one of many, they're one of one and they're served to their needs based on our service team with dedicated consulting services available for them, a smaller community that they're able to partner with for these business services that we've referred to along the lines of marketing, technology, CFO services, and even administrative staff, where they're suddenly building a small community of folks at LPL that they rely upon heavily for all of their needs that are dedicated to get to know their business effectively. Rich, let me switch to you a second. 
having served for a long time as the chief technology officer at UBS, as Mark describes what the value proposition is and the reasons why working under a large independent broker-dealer matters, can you talk a little bit about technology? That technology is a huge driver for advisors as they look to go independent and have the ability to gain access to better-in-class, hopefully best-in-class technology, to customize what they need, to pay only for what they need, to not be as limited. So focusing on technology for just a minute, how do you believe that technology in the independent space in general and then specifically at LPL compares to the technology at UBS and then the wirehouse world in general? I think there's a perception in the independent space that there's a knockdown of what support you're going to get. And I think that's actually where the scale specifically at LPL matters. So the investment level, and we're public about it, we'll spend $150 million this year in enhancements to our technology. That is why when you think about independence, a lot of times folks think of very small players who don't have the ability to invest. If you look at the investment levels that we're making, by and large, on average, you're going to see us making an order of magnitude, at least an order of magnitude, more higher level of investment in technology. Because actually, we agree with you. The technology is the driver of what delivers the advisor experience. And so if you look over the past four years, you'd see that we actually grew our technology investment from $67 million to $150 million. And the expectation of how you think about our value proposition and how we think we get to a virtuous cycle is if we actually are at scale, which we believe we are the scale player, and have the ability to invest at a higher clip, and we're actually efficient and effective with that investment, we'll actually deliver more capabilities to advisors that will drive more advisors to join us, while which will then in turn allow us to invest higher levels in technology. And so you see that manifest itself in us spending $28 million just seven months ago to buy Advisory World because our advisors had said, we need a better proposal generation solution. And so we bought it and integrated it. You see that with us having a roadmap that is consistently delivering new capabilities, new mobile app, new texting capability, new capability around a a program we call Meeting Manager, e-signature capabilities that are unparalleled. Um, We're making the investments because we recognize that in the end, the advisors need to be supported through technology. And I would tell you, having that background, I don't think there is any compromise. In fact, I would tell you, as you look at the competitive set, I would put our sets of capabilities up against anyone in the industry. And Mindy, one of the things that's really unique about independence and has helped this area of the business thrive is that cottage mentality that's emerged over the last decade or so. And so the smaller providers really have led the way oftentimes with innovation and have put us in a position where historically advisors were able to not receive what they could in the wirehouse the same that they could in independence because of the level of innovation and how nimble some of those smaller providers were. I think what we're starting to see now is that it's not just about features, but it's also about the efficiency that that drives through integration. And so as a result of that, you'll see LPL, for instance, as Rich alluded to, going out and acquiring an advisory world to integrate in some of that innovative thinking into our core technology set in a really deep way. But at the same time, leaving us in a position where for the first time probably ever, LPL is suddenly tearing down a lot of the walls around its technology and building bridges to some of those same leading, innovative, smaller tools for the advisors that need it. 
they can come to LPL and receive the best tools that we can offer to them and best of class. But if they've got unique needs that can only be served elsewhere, we've got the integrations, provide them the efficiency they need while leveraging those capabilities. Well, and that's actually, so the next point is, it sounds like what you're saying is that the playing field has been leveled from a technological perspective, actually probably all across the board, but we're talking technology from a technology perspective vis-a-vis the wirehouse or traditional brokerage world. But how about technological capabilities or access versus being an RIA? And I'll tell you what I mean specifically. An RIA becomes an RIA because he or she doesn't want any limitations. He or she doesn't want to be limited or told to use any form of technology. He or she wants to be able to pull from best in class across the street of whatever tech provider's they want to, and build the bespoke solution set that works for them. But if you are an LPL advisor under an LPL umbrella, to what extent are you limited to the technology that LPL makes available to you? So I believe the advisor that is able to successfully go out and build their entire tech stack from scratch by choosing the providers in each of the key areas that they want to integrate those into a seamless experience that drives efficiency for their staff is a rare breed. And so they, I find that they need to rely upon other consultants and business partners that are able to demonstrate what that integration can provide to them and deliver upon it. And that's where I believe LPL is able to lead the way. We have proprietary technology that I would stack up against many of the solutions that are in the space and say that we're right up there as best of class. And I think that for some advisors, that's going to be a great tool. For others, we've got this concept. So ClientWorks is our core technology tool. We've got this concept of ClientWorks Connected. And if they wanted to go and choose to leverage a third-party CRM or reporting tool or financial planning tool, as opposed to what we have natively built into ClientWorks, they're encouraged to do so. And it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we can build the integrations and make sure that they're still gaining the efficiencies because that's how we view our partnership. We want to make sure that, to Rich's point about our mission statement, we're enabling the advisor to be successful. And so we're taking on a lot of that responsibility while still giving them the appropriate choice where they think that they, they need to make those choices. So I agree that it is the rare breed of advisor that wants to and has the capabilities to go out and select and create and build from scratch the entire, not only tech stack, but everything else that they need to build a firm. And whether that be, even if they had the capability, it's about do we have the time, capacity, and desire. And that is why models like Dynasty and every other service provider has been thriving. So- Is what you're saying that LPL, more than being independent broker-dealer, is becoming one of those options as far as partner or platform firm to help an advisor do the things that they may not want to do as they build an independent firm? Yeah, that's what I think I was alluding to a little bit earlier in the discussion. We heard from our advisors that they wanted to have these best-in-breed technology solutions, and we didn't resist it. We actually embraced it and said, yeah, we need to expand our ability to have an ecosystem that includes discrete plugins, but we also recognize that integration is terribly important. And so just allowing you to use those capability sets would be one thing. And so that's that concept of integrating in discrete technologies, cultivated choice for technologies that are deeply integrated into our core ecosystem. But more broadly, what you hear us saying is, yes, we are trying to meet the best advisors and their practices where they want to be met. 
And when they say they need particular technologies and capabilities that we don't have, it means that we need to acquire them or get integrations with them because we think we need to be able to do that to serve the broader market. Mindy, as you hear us talking about this practice level support, to me, what's most important is that the advisor is still the captain of their ship. They're still the CEO and the visionary of the business that they're building. They still own that business and still control the business. But what we see is an opportunity for us to be able to effectively serve as their management committee and be there in a role where we can support them in executing upon that vision in a really unique way while leaving them in an independent place to execute or to design what that vision is. So... How should an advisor think about the hybrid RIA route versus joining an LPL? And here's what I mean by that. For clarity for our listening audience, what we're talking about is the choice of using a custodian as the core of the business, Pershing, Fidelity, Schwab, TD, et cetera, and using a friendly broker-dealer, as we call it, for the ancillary brokerage business, or the choice of joining an independent broker-dealer and being a hybrid RIA through that independent broker-dealer. So for one, can you define the difference because it's confusing and not everybody understands it? And then maybe talk a little bit about how someone should think about deciding which is best for them. To me, a lot of it comes down to the complexity of the advisor's business. So you have one model where an advisor is assuming full regulatory compliance responsibility and the risk that goes along with that and is integrating with, as you mentioned, a custodian or a friendly broker dealer where necessary, but owns their own individually regulated entity. You have another model where an advisor is plugging in. Many in the industry might call it a shared ADV model for example, where they're plugging into another larger RIA for the purposes of sharing the risk and outsourcing the compliance management responsibility. And I think those are the primary distinctions. What's unique about LPL is that we can serve an advisor in either of those capacities. Someone can choose to outsource their risk to us and be able to plug into our shared ADV or corporate RIA model and be able to operate fully independently, but have us be able to assume the compliance responsibility of all the supervision and the uh, regulatory interactions, or they can do that themselves and we'd provide them some tools to do so. What's unique about LPL is that in that model, when you have the custodian and the friendly broker dealer with LPL, it's one. And I don't know of another solution available to advisors in the independent space that delivers the same level of integration as LPL can offer to that hybrid RIA that we can. And I'll use two examples. The first is the idea of client statements. That's the deepest level of integration that I can think of is how far does it go down the path to end client's experience. With an LPL advisor, the client statements that their investors would receive are a single statement combining both the advisory and the brokerage accounts onto a single deliverable instead of them receiving multiple deliverables in their mailbox. Same type of thing from the advisor's experience. They log into one system, one portal, one single location to be able to open and trade and manage both their brokerage and their advisory accounts in a really seamless way to drive that efficiency. So are you saying that there are no other independent broker-dealers that offer a similar sort of panoply of choice, meaning that you can associate with us whatever independent broker-dealer, fill in the blank, and either choose to have your own ADV or a shared or corporate ADV? I think there are other players in the space who can offer that same choice of shared ADV and corporate ADV versus 
having your own. What I don't believe exists is someone who would allow them to have the same depth of integration that I just demonstrated along with that choice. Got it. Okay. So let's shift a bit, Rich, and maybe you can talk about this to the advisors under the LPL umbrella. Tell us a little bit about the typical advisors at LPL. In other words, who's the right fit for the firm? Where did they come from? What does their business mix look like? What are they looking to solve for? Yeah, it's an interesting question to answer when you have 16,300 advisors. You get a whole different set of makeup of practices and compositions. And I would say, what do they have in common? The truth of the matter is that there is a common core tenant, which is they're independent-minded. They want to not be directed. They don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to have indicated to them, this is the banking that you've got to do, or this is the level of technology that you have to adopt, or this is the minimum account size that you need to have for your clients, or this is how you're going to run your practice. So it starts with a sense that there is a practice level knowledge and perspective that I want to run my practice. I have a sense as how my practice will run best. But from there, I think when we think about who this resonates with, it's with folks who are actually looking for a full set of support. That means folks who are looking for that integrated technology solution where they can add on or change if they want to, but also want to have the support of a financial planning desk, want to have the support of a 50-person research team, want to have the support of having the ability for when you have a high net worth client and you want to do a client briefing in the home office, that's available to you, right? Want to have robust advisory platforms. It's really this concept of, I want to run my practice, I want to be independent, but I do not want to compromise in my partnership. And that's what I think you see resonating in the marketplace. And it's why you see two times as many advisors joining LPL as the next closest firm. What does, in terms of size, in terms of assets under management, and in terms of background of the advisors, what do they look like and where are they coming from? They're kind of all over the map. When you've got a community of 16,000, there's a lot of people there, and they, they represent a really diverse segment of this industry. You'll have some folks who run multidisciplined businesses where they do financial advisory, but maybe they also run a, an insurance business or an accounting business, and they do work with LPL on the financial advisory side. And you've got others who have really substantial financial advisory businesses. As Rich said, we've got 16,300 advisors and we have over 700 billion of assets in custody. And so the math equates itself in terms of where averages lay out. But I share that background because I don't think that that tells the full story. And I also think that what's really intriguing is that with the levels of integration we've talked about, so the brokerage, the custody, the technology, the practice level support, we've seen a really true lift of the profile of that advisor to attract the higher end of the market, the larger, more established advisors, to the point that this year we've shared with the public that several multi-billion dollar teams have come and affiliated in some capacity with LPL after having left a different model. And that's not something that we would have said years ago. Yeah, well, that's so you took the words right out of my mouth. So historically, the independent broker-dealer space in general, and LPL specifically, was thought of as being for the advisor with, say, an average of, I'm making this up, 200 million, 300 million, 400 million. It does feel fairly new that, generally speaking, billion-dollar teams are moving in and around the independent space and, more specifically, to an independent broker-dealer. So what do you think that's about? I think, first and foremost, it is about, I expect my practice to be supported with a partner who has the capital, the consistency of a management team and an approach that is 
I can see the investment levels that you're making and that is consistently committed to the business. And so there's this element of, and I, I continue to refer to it, but I don't want to compromise. I'm big enough where I expect to have the same levels of support while I still get to run my own practice. And you see, we stand firm with those capabilities, but we also are coming forward. And I think you hear us you know, talking even today a little bit more straightforwardly about we want to serve larger practices. And so we're building capabilities. We're evolving capabilities. We're bringing folks in like Mark Cohen from Market Council to build a set of capabilities and an understanding of those larger teams and what their discrete needs are. And what is that kind of virtual management team that you need to augment your capability set? We're building and providing all of those capabilities. And all of a sudden, teams that are of that size walk in and say, wait a second, I can come in here and I don't necessarily have to hire a professional management team. You can provide that to me through our business solutions capabilities. And you're willing to flex the way you work with me. And you're willing to allow me to bring in those third-party technologies. But that which you stand at the base level is already uncompromised. And I think you see this combination and it's not just one thing. And by the way, as we look to acquire new practices or expand our practice, you will stand forward with capital for me. And you put that together and it actually starts to build a pretty dominant solution. We feel really strongly about the momentum that we're getting, but more bullish about as we continue to move into this space and and see advisors and see that it's resonating with them. We feel really strongly about what this may look like this coming year and even a couple years forward. So what of the competition? Who do you think either when you lose an advisor, when someone leaves LPL, or when you're recruiting and you're looking at a billion-dollar team and they've got a choice of every other independent broker-dealer, the RIA space, the wirehouse world, what of the competition? I'd say I'd start with when we're recruiting, more often when we lose is when we're not considered. And I think that's one of the things that we have to be straightforward about. This legacy of 30 years and what you had talked about, Mindy, is the perception of what LPL had been. I think there is still that persists to a certain degree in the marketplace. And so more often when we're in conversations and advisors can understand our capabilities and we get a chance to actually speak with them, we win way more than we lose. But the thing that we have to change is for those advisors who are larger to understand that they should put us in the consideration set because we've had a number of opportunities where we haven't gotten a chance. And by the time we get to speak with that team, they may be too far down the path. And that's the heavy lifting that we need to do is reveal that, that we do serve those folks and we serve, and we serve them with distinction. In terms of existing advisors and when they leave, that's more of a dog's breakfast. They leave for various reasons. You may have folks who can't find the next generation succession plan and so may leave to do that. Some, you know, increasingly, and one of the things we've announced recently is we see independent advisors, 20% of independent advisors in the last year left to go back into the employee channel. So we recognize that they that some of the burdens may be too heavy. And so we, we're attacking that through, you know, business solutions to help them, but also for us, you know, really evaluating building and standing up an independent-minded employee channel. Right. But how about the advisors either that leave you or that in your recruiting are choosing to go the RIA hybrid route versus the independent broker-dealer route? And we've talked about the single biggest objection to choosing an independent broker-dealer 
even one as scaled and as capable and as robust with as wonderful leadership as LPL, the single biggest objection or concern is any sort of limitations that the RA hybrid space offers just more flexibility and control. And I'd like you to address that. Where I'm going with that is how limitations ultimately impact overall enterprise value, which is the biggest reason people want freedom and control in the first place. So, Mindy, a lot of this comes back to just FINRA rules, right? So there's FINRA rules that specifically dictate what the responsibility is of a broker-dealer on the outside business activity of their representatives, including in the hybrid RIA type space, specifically actually to the hybrid RIA space. And there's firms that are out there that'll treat that in different ways. They'll scale up or scale down their interpretations of those rules, but the rules are pretty clear. And so what LPL has spent a significant amount of time doing over the course of the past few years, and I've been meaningfully involved with this since joining, is a shift of our cultural mindset from a risk standpoint, from risk averse to being risk ready. And so what that means for us is that we're opening ourselves up and we've gone through a process of evolving the policies, the procedures, the workflows that advisors work through operationally to be able to lower the standard. The reality is that an RIA is operating at a higher standard of care than their broker-dealer colleagues are. Fiduciary versus suitability, and of course we've got Reg BI coming through that's changing some of that, but historically. And the responsibility of the broker-dealer is to say, you've already implemented or executed upon this effort at a fiduciary standard, which is the higher standard of care, but now because of rules purposes, we have to review it at a suitability standard as well, the lower standard of care. And so for us, how do we make that an easier experience for the advisor, given that we have assurances from a regulatory standpoint and a compliance standpoint that they've already gone through a higher level standard of care? Does that answer your question? So yes, from a regulatory standpoint, you're right. An advisor needs to decide whether they're ready to take on the ultimate responsibility of compliance and reg. And those guardrails can either be helpful or annoying. And so if you see them as helpful, great. If you don't, that's fine too. But what about beyond regulatory? What about the guardrails of a prescribed technology stack or a prescribed set of investment solutions or a prescribed compliance department that has to weigh in on how you can write a book or speak to the media or whatever it may be? What of those limitations? I think that's a very real concern for advisors given where this industry has come from, but where we've evolved to and certainly where we're heading, that's no longer what we experience, at least at LPL in terms of the restrictions around the technology they use or how they operate their business, as we've been talking about here. They have the choice of leveraging third-party technology if they deem it necessary, if for some reason they don't believe that the core technology we've already built meets their needs, which, as Rich and I have both said, we think that it is best in class and does everything that they need to, but sometimes advisors have a unique perspective upon that, and we want to offer them the freedom of choice to be able to run their business how they see fit. Yeah, and I think as this cottage industry, to quote you, Mark, has evolved, there is no shortage of compliance consultants like your ex-firm market council, tech consultants, transition consultants, business consultants, whatever it may be, third-party service providers that can come in and sort of do the heavy lift so that if an advisor is annoyed by any of those limitations, there's ways to outsource it. But let's pivot for a second from where I sit, 
a question, natural question that advisors ask is, so, okay, there's limitations, big deal. Well, the big deal, the RIA industry thought leaders would say the big deal is that if you're building a firm for maximum enterprise value, you're building a firm with the end in mind, with the intent of either passing it on to the next gen for max value or perhaps selling it, whether it be taking on an investor from the outside or selling it overall at the end of the day, that any and all limitations limit or suppress the value of the business. So from the perspective that we agree that there are certain guardrails or limitations that are inherent in an independent broker-dealer model like LPL, how do you respond to an advisor, especially a billion-dollar business, that's saying, I'm looking to maximize enterprise value and I'm worried about the suppression of enterprise value? Let's start with this concept of guardrails. And let me flip that on its head and say, is there a value to have a partner who is supporting you with capabilities, capital, infrastructure that actually accelerates your growth? If the answer to that is no, then you should have limitless capabilities and you should run on your own and you should run as independently as you want to. If you actually composite that I need help, I need capital, I need there to be a foundational set of investments that continue to progress my business so that I don't actually have to worry about the regulatory changes so that I can minimize the risk exposure. And if you believe that, I believe, I would posit that we can actually accelerate the creation of value to an enterprise first. Secondly, I think I would challenge into this concept that just because I own the RIA, I should place a higher multiple. This is about what is the real value of the mitigation of risk or who owns the risk. And so I would tell you that we would challenge secondly into this concept that multiples are higher just because I actually own the RIA. This is an outsourcing of risk question at the heart of it. And so why would you say, because you chose not to outsource risk, that you should get a higher multiple? I think there are multiple things that I would posit to say, in the end, I don't actually agree with the premise. And so for folks who are trying to drive growth and want a partner who is going to stand with them and help them drive that growth and be driven to that growth because we both mutually benefit, I think I would tell you this is the best place to be. And let's be clear. There are some advisors who should be running their own RIA for various reasons. There are many other advisors for whom the responsibility around that risk just isn't a fit for their personality. And despite the fact that there are many firms that are out there, I happen to know one quite well that can assume some responsibility around compliance for them, the buck stops with the advisor and the owner and the leadership team of the RIA. There's no one that's going to be assuming that risk for them as long as they are separately regulated. And so for many individuals, that's a major decision-making process. We have a lot of folks today who are currently running their own RIA who I've spoken with recently, call us up and say, you know what? The SEC was in our office recently. I just can't do that again. And are looking at the opportunity of migrating towards the shared ADV or corporate RIA model. Yeah. I think you both just did a really great job of clarifying the, the real key question. 
that comes down to it's a matter of choice. It's a matter of how comfortable one is owning the risk. That's really what it comes down to. And it's not that there's a right or wrong. It's not that there's only one way. It's why Baskin-Robbins makes 31 flavors of ice cream. There are those that should be an RIA because they're ultra-entrepreneurial and don't want anybody else to have any control. And there are others that just aren't comfortable with it, and that's okay too. Mindy, can I just hit you one thing there real quick? Please. Years ago, I worked at Ford. We were spinning out the parts division of Ford. It ultimately became a company named Visteon. And one of the things we were trying to bid on in the marketplace, we were trying to bid on fuel systems. And so think about that as like a gas tank. And the truth of the matter is there's catastrophic risk associated with a gas tank. Because when gas tanks malfunction, they malfunction catastrophically. You lose lives, unfortunately. So For a company like Ford, as we looked at it, it was very hard for us to price competitively in the marketplace because there was into fuel systems because of the catastrophic risk. And what you saw was upstart competitors who actually priced the risk at zero, winning a lot of the business in the marketplace because they assumed they would actually just go bankrupt. And there's the difference, right? Who is it that ultimately stands behind the risk? And in these scenarios, you don't actually have to assume the risk. And when there's this catastrophic risk, it stands with a firm who generates $500 million in free cash flow a year, who actually is a very sound firm capital-wise and operationally-wise. So I don't know that it resonates exactly, but it's one of the things I think about. I think it's a fair example. And Mark, one more point about that. Given your market council background, what is the comparison between LPL owning the risk, a a firm that generates $500 million in free cash flow a year, versus an RIA that has E&O insurance and the insurance from the custodian or the backstop of the custodian? Any theory that the custodian, who's a great business partner to those RIAs, would assume regulatory risk? on behalf of the RIA would be a misconception. There's an intentional arm's length relationship between those two entities, the RIA and the custodian. And we know that because quite frankly, there are many RIAs that we work with and we are the custodian and there's an arm's length relationship there as well where the RIA is assuming that responsibility. In a model where LPL can assume that responsibility in a shared risk model, we're taking a lot of that responsibility from the advisor by way of our supervisory controls, by way of providing enterprise-level E&O insurance and other support mechanisms to be able to mitigate against that risk. Got it. So you talk about LPL as custodian. How do you believe LPL's as custodian stacks up against Schwab as custodian, Fidelity as, as custodian, Pershing as custodian, et cetera? I think the evolution of this marketplace has left us in a position where the core idea of custody is just a commodity. And what you can get from one provider versus the other is awfully similar. The pricing has compressed to the point that there's really not material differences in what the cost infrastructure is there, but it's what are the intangibles you can receive from those relationships? Because to the point that you made a little while ago, for a very long time now, the custodian in the RIA space 
has effectively served as the epicenter of the RIA's business and has been the biggest and most influential partner that the RIA has. And so from our standpoint, where we try to differentiate ourselves is that integration we've talked about. It's leaning forward with really aggressive and innovative technology solutions. It's assuming some of the business level support. We'll, we'll run billing, for instance, for all of our advisors that we work with. And I don't know of another firm that would do something along those lines at that level within a practice. We'll provide them with some of these management type capabilities. We'll be their technology help desk if they need it for their office. And from our standpoint, it's how do we provide that value around the custody solutions that has become commoditized where we can differentiate ourselves. And what of the fact that Schwab and Fidelity and Pershing custody is all they do for the most part on that side of the house and the fact that they are much bigger than you on just the custody side. So if an advisor is choosing to use LPL as custodian as opposed to broker-dealer, how should they think about that? I think a lot of times that's a, a little bit of what I was alluding to before, which is the choice of LPL more often has to do with who do you want to be your business partner. The expectations for us is that it won't begin and end as a custodian. And that means that we want to extend into how we're supporting you through technology, want to extend into how can we help you grow your practice with the deployment of capital for growth loans, transition loans, acquisition capital. How can we help you scour out and identify targets for acquisition? How can we help you through providing professional management to help you drive new client generation through our marketing services? How can we provide that stack of local office technology through our technology solutions? And so I think the decision usually actually, as you look at the evaluation criteria, I think a lot of times it's a different evaluation criteria, which is there's a partner who is looking to participate with you across a broader width of the value chain. So I think many times it's a different decision criteria. And one of the publicly traded company status. So obviously Schwab falls into the same category as you, but there are advisors that prefer Fidelity, for example, because it's privately held. So this is one of the things I would probably pound the table about. I think you want to be with a partner that is publicly traded. And I tell you specifically why. I think you actually want to know about stability. I think advisors don't want to see change of control every four years. I don't think that they necessarily want to see that there's a capital structure that you know has a limited time horizon for how you're going to run the business. We don't actually run the business at for a liquidation event that is sometime in the future. We don't run the business to dress it up for it to be sold. We run the business business to get the best results for our advisors, our shareholders, and our employees. And in so, part of that is actually that transparency. And so you actually can see our debt load. You can see that it's light. You can see that capital, the free cash flow that is generated. It's available to you. You can see that we buy back $400 million in shares a year, trending towards $500 million, and that in an environment where you see an economic downturn that we may be staring into, you know that we have the capital strength to actually not buy back those shares and continue to invest in the business. There will be a sustained investment made at this firm. And the reason that I can confidently share that with you is not just because I'm on the management committee, but because we reveal that to our shareholders quarterly. And we do that annually through a strategy review as well. And we have an investor day. Having all of that transparency for me to tell you that we spend $150 million, that's not something you have to trust on faith. We actually deliver that publicly. So there is a transparency to what you're going to get 
There is a stability to the leadership, and there is a long-term investment parameter that you get with a publicly traded firm. I'm not talking about relative to Fidelity. That's a really well-run firm. I'm talking about to some of the other firms that may be smaller in nature who are consistently participating with private equity. It's just a stark contrast in the ownership structure and the implications of that ownership structure. So before we take up too much more of your time, let me ask you one last question. Curious as to how you would counsel a prospective breakaway evaluating the independent space at this point. So we're talking now to an advisor who is currently an employee of a brokerage firm who is either has a couple of options, staying put, status quo, either taking their firm's retiring advisor program or just continuing to grow where they are changing firms and moving to another traditional firm and or going independent. What would you say to those folks? As we've been sitting here talking about, the entire landscape has been evolving pretty materially, and I think we'll continue to see an evolution. There are several consideration sets that an advisor needs to think of while they sit in that chair. The first are what are some of the tax implications? So if I take the retirement package, What exactly does that mean for myself and my family? And how does that end up leading to lifestyle and other responsibilities that I might have to the firm as well as to myself? If I go and I start my own independent RIA, what are the responsibilities that I'm assuming as part of that decision? If I decided to go and look at a traditional independent broker dealer, what are some of the limitations, as you've alluded to pretty strongly, Mindy, that I'd be signing up for and saying, okay, I'm fine with this in exchange for a certain payout rate? But I think that where we see the market evolving is a a bit of a a merging of different opportunity sets. And so if you take a look, for instance, at the legacy IBD model, one of the more attractive things that I've heard from advisors is the opportunity to gain independence as opposed to remaining an employee and being governed by that relationship, but receiving some form of economic incentive to be able to make a move and make it a little bit easier to make a move. Well, now suddenly there's opportunities where you have chances to make a move and not necessarily settle for some of those limitations that we've talked about, but still receive some form of economic incentive to make that move easier. We recognize that when you move firms that there's going to be a time period where you have to solicit your clients, you have to wait for the first billing to run, then you get paid. And how do I manage cash flow during that period? How do I potentially manage the expense of startup related expenses? I have to go and I have to build out office space and buy technology and put up a brand. And that can be fairly costly to an advisor. How do I manage those expenses? And now suddenly there are firms like LPL that can be a partner that helps with all of those decisions and the infrastructure to be able to do so but also be able to support from a capital standpoint in ways that we haven't seen before so that advisors can make that move without coming out of pocket necessarily and be able to still maintain themselves in a position where they're earning the larger amounts on an ongoing basis. They're receiving the benefits of capital gains treatment on their monetization event down the road upon that retirement decision. I have a quick answer. The independent space represents only 30% of advisors, but 50% of advisors who moved in the last year went to the independent channel. And I will tell you something else. Where we dominate the industry 
is what I call second trade independence. Folks who actually went out of an employee channel, went to an independent and realized they compromised too much. They thought they wanted to get to a small firm where they knew the president of the BD and they realized the implication of that is, oh my gosh, look at all these things I don't have anymore. If you want to see where the center of gravity is for us, it is folks who made that trade and then went, oh shoot, I really love independence, but I don't like all these compromises. And that's when they end up with us. Yeah. The real truth of the matter is that who wouldn't want, generally speaking, more freedom, flexibility, and control, the hallmarks of being independent. But before 10 years ago or so, no one had really figured out how to get at least a big team who had an enormous amount of unvested deferred comp that they'd walk away from and just lived in a world where they're used to being compensated for making the move, being able to monetize on the way in. No one had figured out the two things that prevented people from doing it most often, which was money up front and a turnkey way to get there. And I think one of the most exciting things in the last decade is the industry has responded and it sounds like LPL has for sure as well. We see a really significant trend for advisors who are starting to think about retirement and are envisioning what their life after their working career would look like, who suddenly are imagining, well, how do I potentially do a double trade here? How do I potentially make a move, monetize that move as you just alluded to, but then also in a relatively short period of time, monetize again, because now I have an asset that it's independent. It's been built to my vision. It's my business. I own it so I can sell it again. Yes. Thank you both so very much. It was incredibly enlightening, and I hope to continue the conversation. It's always great. And Mindy, thanks for having us. I know the podcast has really become a must listen for the industry. And so thanks for having us here. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's great to see you again. Pleasure. Over the past 30 years, LPL has evolved well beyond the perception of your father's independent broker-dealer. It now serves as custodian, clearing firm, technology provider, back office support, and most importantly, business partner, all rolled into one. In our next episode, we'll be speaking with UBS Breakaways Doug John and Bryn Talkington of Dallas-based Requisite Capital Management, who will share their journey to independence. It's a great story, and I hope you'll listen in. Until then... I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for more valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to this series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908 879-1002 or mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank Advisor Hub for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.